Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And as you may know, if you're following along, I am currently reading the early novels of Willa Cather, primarily her Great Plains trilogy, but also I'll be looking at one of ours, and I've already looked at the Troll Gardens. So we'll be looking at a handful of her early novels, and we, and we did some stories earlier on too. And in this episode, I'm going to be beginning what I think is the longest of these early novels by Willa Cather. One of her more personal ones, I, I think... Um, of what I've read so far, and I've, I've only really have the Troll Gardens and Old Pioneers to compare it to her best. Uh, I'll have to see my Antonia and one of ours to see if they can uh, improve on this. But, you know, Old Pioneers is so small. It's a really tight story. And although you have a fair number of characters and it's kind of over a large period of time, almost 20 years, and the story itself is very confined. It's, it's really about this one woman who emerges to be the leader of her of her farm when her father dies, her conflict with her brothers, and then the fate of her younger brother when he falls in love with with a married woman, and and where that, that where that where, where that leaves her, and then her decision then to um, recover from that by asserting her own independence and choice in her life, uh, not just as manager of a farm, but as a fully formed human being in in finding in, in pursuing her love interest. That's the story in the Old Pioneers. Again, it's very small it's not a very long novel it's only about 150 pages uh song of the lark on the other hand is is around 400 pages and you know based on library of america um, pages of course but uh it's around so it's about it's almost three times as long as uh o pioneers it doesn't cover nearly as much time though it, it's it's sh- it, you know it's looking at just a a few years in the life of a young woman um, but it's a much grander scale. We have a much grander geography here. And the pioneers, it's all set in one little town. And people come and go from other places, but it's all set in one place. The Song of the Lark is set really across the United States, from Colorado to to Chicago, to New York, to, to abroad, to Germany. And so it's, it's all over the world, really. Um, and I think in the end, it maybe covers probably around the same amount of time as Old Pioneers because it's because there's like an ending that's 10 years later. But the heart of the story is really about the education of a young artist, a musician, a singer um, who has her roots in the small town called called Moonstone. It's it's, you know, this idea of an artist from a small town is something she did a lot in in. It's actually in Old Pioneers, too, if you look at the character of Carl. I mean, Carl's a becomes an artist he has to go to but he has to to make a name for himself he has to go to chicago and and then move around we saw it a lot in the troll gardens though of of you know art talented artistic people who can't really make a name for themselves in small towns or small town people who don't really understand art and so artists feel this draw away so and there's a story called the sculptor's garden where uh, a really talented artist dies he goes back to his hometown and everyone just remembers him as like a snot-nosed kid and so he never really gets the respect he deserves. There's another story called um, a Wagner matinee in which a woman comes to visit like New York from the countryside and is taken to see art. And then she realizes what she lost because by choosing a life in, in the frontier in Nebraska, she had to give up on her artistic life. So there's a lot of skepticism in Cather's work about 
the potential to make it in in a small town and and our character here is almost forced by her ability and her determination to be an artist and the in some in, to some degree the pressure of the people around her who who see her talent and want her to see her cultivate it their desire to draw her uh to, to to move her ahead in the career and that requires taking her away from her family and then you know i i really like the way the story works out you know i i just was not long ago when it came out the movie coco the pixar movie i was reading the reviews of it and one thing that struck me is that a lot of reviewers were talking about that this movie is really good on the like the challenge of being the artist it's that the cliche narrative is you have a talent you have a skill you have a dream and you work hard on it and you know the family looks the other way or, or discourages you but you struggle on anyways and you get ahead right and that's a cliche narrative. And what you had in Coco is a story about how being a talented and a great artist means actually turning your back on your family as often or not. And as, as great as that movie is, I have to say Willa Cather, you know, got there first. And she may not be the first person to tell the story in this way, but the main character here, Thea, gives up a lot and she turns her back on a lot. And she and there, there's literally bodies in the way of her fame and her success and her, her mobility upward um, and her cultivating of her craft. So that's it, it's just so Kathy here is much more focused on the costs and the burden of being an artist and what that means for one's personal life, one's uh, kind of the normal upbringing one may one may experience. Um, so I, I think in that way, it, it's kind of a, it's it's very, very interesting. It's it's very it's almost the inverse, I think, of of the Wagner matinee, where in that one you had a character who chose to stay in the countryside but could never develop her art. Here, the character does venture out, um, but at great cost, I think. I think another theme of the Song of the Lark has to be the future of the frontier or the nature of the frontier, and especially as it enters the modern world. Um, so we got a bit of this in Old Pioneers, but it's not quite as strong there. It's, it's a little bit more idyllic in Old Pioneers. Here we see all the evidence in, in, in Colorado of the arrival of the railroad, the arrival of modernity, and all the pressures that, that go along with that. And so we really have kind of a lost land, a, a land that's on the verge of being lost to mechanization to modernity. And so, you know, I think all of Willa Cather's novels that I've read so far are in many ways about the end of the frontier. And in fact, they're written at a time in which that was the major, one of the major historical debates and one of the questions a lot of people had looking at American history. And certainly this was something that inspired Frederick Jackson Turner when he wrote his book on the frontier in American history is, is the worry about the end of the frontier and what does that mean for American democracy in the future. And, and I think that's on Willa Cather's mind too. And, and a few times when I, I came across it a lot, but I'll mention a few examples where we see the evidence of the intruding of of the modern world on what's an otherwise kind of a quaint and quiet and gossipy and and you know even banal town i mean it's it's pretty clear why thea can't make it i mean the best she can hope for in in moonstone is to be a a musician uh, like a not not even a local musician really but as a musician the best thing she can hope for is to be like a teacher Right. We actually see a character like that. Her teacher is that kind of person who has talent, some imagination, and is kind of stuck in Moonstone. And he ends up being a drunk about it. So that's sort of the future that Thea could have had for herself, we, we want to think. 
but um, she has her chance to get out. And but but again, it's at great costs, and so it means kind of turning her back on 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 the frontier or on her small town. And I think one thing that comes up again and again in in these stories is this idea of of kind of the modern or the urban overtaking the rule. You, you saw it a lot in the Troll Gardens. It's not so strong in Old Pioneers, but here there's, there's a lot of it. It's just that the, the narrative of America is becoming the urban narrative, the, the modern narrative, the, the narrative from the cities. And then where does that leave the countryside? Where does that leave the rural areas? Where does it leave the South? And of course, Catherine's writing about the West, but you know, there's other places in America that are gonna become, you know, quote unquote, flyover country. And I, I think she's getting at something here that's kind of interesting about like the roots of flyover country. If someone were to write such an article about that, that you, know, you might want to go look at Willa Cather for her, her kind of insight into the transformations in, in, in the frontier and as it really becomes a place that gets, it gets left behind. And in the case of Thea, it literally has to be left behind if she wants to make anything of her life beyond what's been kind of given to her. All right, so The Song of the Lark is written in six parts with an epilogue. As I said, it's 400 pages. Part one is the longest. Yeah, it's the longest. No, maybe part five is, is no, that's, that's short too. So part one is clearly is by far the longest, looking at the table of contents. It's about 130 pages, so I'll just talk about part one today, and then I'll, I'll, over the next three episodes, I'll, I'll look at you know one or two parts. Um, each time, um, I'm not. I don't know if I want to go chapter by chapter through this though. It's it's about 20 chapters, and you know, it's I didn't take actually. This is kind of an excuse because I didn't take as careful no of notes I nor as I normally do when I read through the first part. I'm I'm still kind of getting my feel for for um, Willa Cather, and I had some other things I was working on. So I will give you a little bit more impressionistic here, but I think that's okay because part one is is actually could be set as part of his own story. It's, it's really about um, the, the childhood starting from maybe, I forget how old she is when she starts, maybe seven or eight, from that until you know her teenage years of this character, Thea. And it really focuses on her decision and, and the, the events that lead her to, to leave Moonstone and go to, to Chicago. So that's, that's essentially the plot. Um, as the novel opens, we're with... Uh, Dr. Howard Archie, and he's going to visit, or he's going to the Kronberg's house. And so Kronberg's are the main family, um, and Thea, our main character, is, is a daughter of the Kronberg family. Um, but to, so as the novel begins, uh, Thea's sick with pneumonia, and her mom's pregnant and about to give birth to, to a child, and this child is a son. So the, the name's actually... Um, matter here, it seems. Um, Thor is the name of the son that's going to be born. So this newborn son is named Thor. And of, of course, Cather's writing about these Scandinavians out in, on the frontier, the same way in the Old Pioneers. But here it's in Colorado, and Old Pioneers is in Nebraska. This um, Thea actually comes from Greek mythology. And what do I find from Wikipedia here? In Greek mythology, Thea, also called... Eurofasa, wide shining, is a tightness. Her brother consorts Hyperion, a titan and the sun, god of the sun, and together they're the parents of Helios, Selene, and and Eos. So I don't know. There's not much here about 
her powers or what she was really about. But, you know, it seems that the family was taking names from, from mythology as they, they chose names for their kids. Fairly early, in the fairly early in the story, we're given the background of the Kronberg family, um, the family we're going to be following for the course of the whole novel. And I found it quite interesting, so I'm going to, to share it with you. It's on page, it starts on page 305 of the Library of America version. Uh, born in an old Scandinavian colony in Minnesota, Peter Kronberg had been sent to a small divinity school in Indiana by the women of a Swedish evangelical mission who were convinced of his gifts and who skimped and begged and gave church suppers to get the long, lazy youth through the seminary. He could speak enough Swedish to extol and bury the members of his county, county church out at Cooper Hill, and he wielded in his moonstone pulpit a somewhat pompous English vocabulary he had learned out of the books at college. He always spoke of the infant savior and our heavenly father, etc. The poor man had no natural, spontaneous human speech. If he had his sincere moments, they were perforce inarticulate. Perhaps a great deal of his pretentiousness was due to the fact that he habitually expressed himself in a book learned language, wholly remote from anything personal, native, or homely. Mrs. Kronberg spoke Swedish to her own sisters and her sister-in-law Tilly, and colloquial English to her neighbors. Thea, who had a rather sensitive ear until she went to school, never spoke at all except in monosyllables, and her mother was convinced that she was tongue-tied. She was still inept in speech for a child so intelligent. Her ideas were usually clear, but she seldom attempted to explain them even at school, where she excelled at written work and never did much more than mutter or reply. Um, so that's our background. I mean, we got the the kind of the formal academic, uh, you know, everything very carefully presented. It seems Thea gets a bit of that from her father too. You know, her her not desire to speak, but her, her the fact that she can write really well. She expresses her ideas very clearly. She's she's not pompous though, like her father, because she's she's got much simpler and straightforward language. Her father, already educated, of course, you know, excels in this this more this pompacity. But essentially, this is a, a a religious family or a family that's that's of the church now one of the first major changes in thea's life that happens early on is is the decision to start getting music lessons and the person she gets music lessons with is this guy named um, wunschk professor wunschk and again I, I think he's sort of where thea would have ended up had she not gone on to chicago she's he's the one who's pulled to to moon, Moonstone and, and can't leave for whatever reason. And the result of this, his character is rather tragic, really. He, he's not that well-liked. He can't really keep students. He drinks a lot. He's got sort of a bad reputation and you know, he has trouble making a living. Um, so that's, you get, you know, when you understand more about Thea, you start to think, when you think back at, at Wunsk, Professor Wunsk, maybe he was drinking to compensate for his own failures and his inadequacies in life and the fact that he was stuck there. I mean, the, I mean, this is always something I think teachers encounter, you know, is when they meet their better, they meet someone, you know, it's not jealousy, right? It, but it might be sometimes a bit of frustration and malaise about their own inability to achieve those lengths in a field they love, right? Whatever it might be, or their the kind of the limitations they faced in their life, you know, but, you know, their hope, then they have hopefulness for the younger person to, to maybe do what they couldn't accomplish. But there's a little bit of sadness in the realization that, that that will never be what you can achieve because of, you know, wherever your life ended up. So it's actually in chapter four of part one of the novel that she starts taking lessons. It's in a summer. And actually we get a lot of symbolism of kind of the cycles of the seasons. We start out with a, with a child being born. We, we, we see the turning of the seasons. 
we see kind of the family genealogy. So there's a lot of thematic, of, you know, even the coming and going of illnesses. These are things that are kind of the cycles of nature, the cycles of life. We're very much tied to the earth. And this is something that's familiar to us. If we've read like Old Pioneers, for instance, we, we saw the same kind of imagery. It's going to be kind of inverted here when we see modernity having a much more prominent place in, in Moonstone than it did in the divide of, of old pioneers. And we actually spend much of the novel in the city. So we, it's not, it's not so much really a novel of the prairie. It's, it's a novel about this artist who, who just had her roots in the prairie. Right. I mean, in a meta level, it's about the, the end of the end of the frontier, I think, but you know, it doesn't really spend a lot of time there. So, but in the beginning, we do get this feeling that we're in for a novel about the prairie, about, you know, the frontier or wherever. I'm not quite sure where this moonstone is supposed to be. It, I mean, she's in a place that's that's there. I mean, there's mountains in in the backdrop of these people's lives, so it's it's you don't see that much farming going on compared to old pioneers. So it's kind of the edge of of the prairie. It's oh, of the Great Plains. Anyways, enough about that that geography. Um, but it's in chapter four we start to see these hints about the the arrival of of modernity to this, and it's really represented by the fact that this town is. At, you know, at the edge of a rail line. And that's really where it makes, you know, where it gets its connection to the outside world and characters come and go via this, this rail, rail line. Um, and here's a description. Thea had to walk more than a mile to reach the Kohler's house, a very pleasant mile out of town towards the glittening sand hills, yellow in the morning with lines of deep violet where the clerfs and valleys were. She followed the sidewalk to a depot at the south end of town and took the road east to a little group of adobe houses where the Mexicans lived and then dropped into a deep ravine, a dry sand creek across which the railroad track ran on a trestle. Beyond that gulch on the little rise on the ground that faced the open sandy plains was the Kohler house where Professor Wunsch lived. Fritz Kohler was a town tailor, one of the first settlers. He had moved there, built his little town, and made a garden when Moonstone was first marked down on the map. He had three sons, but they now worked on the railroad and were stationed in distant cities. One of them had gone to work at the, at the Santa Fe and lived in New Mexico. And so just in the, the space of a generation, this pure frontier area, you know, not even on the map, was already sending out you know, sons to work on the railroad. So it's a very rapid shifting frontier. And I think that's that's something that Willa Cather is very, very much aware of as she writes these novels, that this is a fastly evaporating uh, frontier area. Now, these journeys into town allow her to interact with kind of a broader section of society in Moon, Moon, Moonstone, like the Colders themselves. And there's a person named Spanish Johnny and there's like the whole Mexican community. And so there's a lot of people coming and going. And, and these are kind of side characters in the tale, but, but they're an interesting part of the fabric of, of life in, in, in this area. Like Spanish Johnny, for instance, is, is even an artist a bit. He's like, a, you know, like he was a painter before and he plays music. And, and therefore, there's a lot of characters who can inspire Thea in little ways, you know, in, the, in this early part of, of the story. So you got to kind of pay attention. And honestly, I didn't pay nearly as much attention now that I think about it, about all the all these characters when I first read it. But I, when I came back and started to jotting down a few notes, I, I, I saw some of these these connections. It, it, this is a novel maybe that's worth going through a couple times to 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 catch how, how significant a lot of these characters were in the development of of Thea's art and her her interests and her, her drive to be an artist. But a lot of these these characters, despite their talent, are, are kind of failures and 
And maybe that's something that's also on Thea's mind that, that leads to a very, very strong drive. It's, it's really an exceptional drive, we see, especially in the later second half of the novel, or even the second third of the novel. We start to see how important, how this drive really pushes her to, to cultivate her talent to the maximum ability. And, and maybe this has something to do with the characters she met along the way. We get our first full description of the town of Moonstone in, in chapter 5. And what I can say about this is, is it's, it's actually, despite being relatively new town within like one generation, right? It, it, this town has been established, but it's very much a modern town. It's got a lot of modern institutions. It's got a lot of modern technologies. It's connected to the world. It's in a broader market. It's, it's not self-sufficient um, by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, this is all symbolized by the railroad. Um, coming in and out. And then we have, you know, a lot of modern institutions like um, well, businesses and there's banks, a lot of churches. There's also a lot of diversity here. That's what I'm trying to get at. There's this not only modern town, but it's also a very diverse town. And we have a lot of ethnic diversity here. Not so much racial diversity. I, I don't think I've, I've seen more than one or two black characters at all in Willa Cather's writing. I think there was one in in a biracial character in Song of the or in Troll Gardens. That's the only one. But it, it still is uh, ethnically quite diverse, especially with this heavy Mexican influence in in Moonstown. It's also very class divided, and and there's a fair degree of class consciousness among among the people and that's part of i think the limitations of moonstown despite its modernity it's very small it's very insular it's very chatty very gossipy everyone knows who everyone's is right and everyone can keep tabs on each other so that that could be a difficult place i think to to kind of strive out as an individual when you're constantly being burdened by how other people see you and how you are where you are vis-a-vis -vis other other figures in the in the community um, actually, we get a very nice panoramic view of the town in 320. That reminds me very much of some of her panoramic descriptions of, of the divide in, in Old Pioneers. But now they're, they're more of a town. Um, Thea has a very, very close and uh, well close connection with a lot of educated adults. And I think that's very important to her, her upbringing. Of course, her parents, or at least her father, is very much very educated. But beyond that, she spends a lot of time with Wunsch. She tends a lot, spends a lot of time with, with um, this doctor, Dr. Howard Archie, who's, of course, very educated. And she actually follows him around at times. And at one moment early in the story, she follows him to see uh, uh, Spanish Johnny, a Mexican who is a singer, the mandolin player, an artist. And he's sick, so, but she goes along with him on the, you know, on the, on the house call. And she seems to do that a lot. She's, she just, she's not getting the traditional education where you hear from one adult who tells you what the right answer is. She's engaging with a lot of adults as an equal. And I, for me, there's, a, there's something to be said for that type of, of education. You know, yeah, I guess public schooling is good for what it's worth, but it does, is, it's kind of like the adults are right and the students are learning from the adult and it's kind of a one directional thing. But when you read Thea, it's maybe because she's so smart Maybe it's because she is a bit privileged, uh, because her, her father is a prominent you know, pastor in the community. But you know, a lot of adults see her as brilliant and, and are gravitated towards her and, and, and 
often engage her really straight up as adults. They don't talk to her like a child very often. And I think that has a lot to do with her confidence and her her drive and just, just the way she develops and is educated. Because she's being educated by the whole community. It's really kind of like it takes a village kind of thing, but it's it's not just that the whole community is trying to raise her. It's that they're interacting with her as a person and not just as a, a child. And I, I think that makes a difference. And I don't know how much of this was on Will Cather's mind, but I was struck by how in such a straight way so many different educated, brilliant, you know, motivated and, you know, and creative adults, you know, talked in very straightforward ways with, with Thea. It's actually Wunsk who, who says, you know, you're really skilled, you know, maybe you want to try opera, you know, and actually introduced her to opera and didn't do it in a condescending way. Didn't really do it as a teacher, but just gave her an option and, and gave her the scores and said, you know, maybe you want to look at this. I think it was Orpheus, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice from, by Gluck was the score he showed her. And you actually see adults in talking with Thea contradict each other and disagree about the best path forward for her. So there's this moment, I think this is when they're going up to see Spanish Johnny and this host call. And, and here's the conversation. Nearly every time I come in and you're alone, you're reading one of those books, Theory remarked thoughtfully. They must be very nice. The doctor dropped back in a swivel chair, the mottled volume still in his hand. There aren't exactly books, Thea. He said seriously, they're a city. A history, you mean? Yes and no. They're a history of a live city, not a dead one. A Frenchman undertook to write about the whole city full of people. All the kinds he knew. And he got them nearly all in, I guess. It's very interesting. You'd like to read it someday when you're grown up. Thea leaned forward and made out the title of the back. A distinguished provincial in Paris. Doesn't sound very interesting. Perhaps not, but it is. The doctor scrutinized her broad face, low enough to be in direct light under the green lampshade. Yes, he went on with some satisfaction. I think you'll like them one day. You're always curious about people, and I expect this man knew more about people than anyone that ever lived. City people or country people? Both. People are pretty much the same everywhere. Oh, no, they're not. The people who go through in the dining car aren't like us. What makes you think they aren't, my girl? Their clothes? Thea shook her head. No, it's something else. I don't know. Her eyes shifted under the doctor's searching gaze, and she glanced at the row of books. How soon will I be old enough to read them? Soon enough, soon enough, little girl. The doctor patted her hand and looked at her index finger. The nail's coming in all right, isn't it? But I think that man makes you practice too much. You have it all on your mind. You have it on your mind all the time. Then he noticed that when she talked to him, she was always opening and shutting her hands. It makes you nervous. No, he don't. Thea replied stubbornly, watching Dr. Archie return the book to its niche. So th that's just part of this conversation. But it, it shows you know, that she's getting competing messages from adults. And this is, I think, going to be key to, this is key to, I think, any child's individuality, is that they see that parents are on a unified front, that they, they compete, that there's different points of view, and there's space for debate, right? So, you know, I'm not saying parents fighting in front of kids is necessarily a good thing, but adults disagreeing and having discussions and back and forthing in front of kids, I think, can be, can be a healthy thing. You know, it doesn't always have to be a, a united front. Anyways, uh, moving on. I, I want. I need to talk about the most important character, except for Thea, of this first part, and that is Ray Kennedy. Ray Kennedy's a railroad man, and when we meet him, uh, when we meet him, I think Thea is is still like only thirteen or or fourteen or something. So 
you know, think of this as you want, but he, he decides he wants to marry Thea when she's old enough, right? So he's, he's already got his sights on her. And he comes and goes into town because he's a railroad guy, right? And he, over time, spends more and more time with, with Thea. Now, we don't get to see all of it, but we see a few moments in which they're together. And we're told in the text that he has his plans to, you know, in five, six years, whenever, to, to marry Thea. And he's, he's like 30 or so. Um, and there's a moment in which, like, there's a, a period where Johnny, Thea, and Ray, you know, are all traveling together. And now, Ray Kennedy is also another adult who talks to Thea in a very frank way. Um, he's a very self-educated guy. He, of course, he didn't go to college. He doesn't have a formal education, but he does read. And he's, he's mostly self-educated. He's also very has a lot of bad luck, but he's got good humor about his bad luck. And his bad luck is really on speculation. And there was like, for instance, once he invested in a in like a silver mine, uh, but he had to pull out his investment to help bury his sister or something because his sister died and they had to ship the body and no one else had money. So he had to pull out that investment. And then like the next day, it's revealed to be a major silver mine. And, you know, he lost all this money, but he still has good humor about this. And I, I think it's a. Uh, you know, we, he, he sees, we see him as a risk taker. And I think that's something that Thea, Thea gets from, from Ray Kennedy. But he's presented early on as, as the possible love interest of, of Thea or, you know, potentially someone she might marry in the future. But still, he's very much limited. He, he's a railroad man, right? So he's, he's kind of got this route that he's on. He's back and forth on this route. And he's not the kind of person who's going to pull her into a broader world. Right. If she ends up marrying him, he's going to be the kind of force that keeps her stuck in in Moonstown, it seems. So it's around this time when she's still a, a, a girl that Thea starts to take on pupils and she starts to do her first teaching and she charges just a little bit of money, like a penny or a dime per hour of lessons. But she starts to learn to teach and she starts to to teach even younger kids, you know, the basics of of piano. And so, you know. I don't know where we are exactly. It's like chapter eight or nine. She's she's beginning to actually make a profession of teaching. And and I think this is presented a bit as a trap because this is where Wunsk is. And, you know, she's not going to go this way. She is going to do something more with her life than just be a teacher. But it, it's sort of a trap. And, and that's how it's presented at the end of part one, that, you know, she can't get stuck in, in Moonstown. She has to be in Chicago. Unfortunately, it's Chicago, but... Um, you know, that's that's the, the story we're given. Um, but I think the, the beginning of the teaching is presented here as a trap for, for Thea, something that's going to, again, like Ray, maybe, lack or do. Now, Ray's a great character. Ray's a great character. He's interesting. He seems to really care about Thea. He clearly cares about Thea a great deal. And he's kind of a fun guy. He's good-humored. He's adventurous, risk-taker. You know, and I, you know everyone likes self-educated guys, too. But he's still not going to be the one who's going to fully understand or be able to cultivate um, Thea's gift. In the end, he, he knows Thea's talented, but it's not something he can really handle in his life. And, he's you know, we'll, we'll see in a, in a few minutes, but it's ultimately going to be only through death that he can liberate Thea to, to pursue her talent. Uh, now, the major event a after we're introduced to Ray Kennedy, the next major event in in Thea's life is the Christmas Eve concert. And I think what this shows is kind of the clicky, gossipy nature of, of Moonstown and, and kind of how limiting it is. 
Um, basically, there's this costume on Christmas Eve like a lot of small towns will have, and different people would perform. And in this case, there's kind of a little bit of a competition almost where there's this other girl, Lily Fisher, who sings all these religious songs. And, the, her, you know, she sings kind of what the church wants to hear, you know, the, the sweet religious songs, all the churchy songs. And Thea does something a little bit different. So she plays, uh, what's the piece? I know it's mentioned here. So it's the ballad. I, I don't know. I forget which person's ballad, you know, which, who, who composed it. But here's what Catherine writes. The ballad took 10 minutes, which was five minutes too long. The audience grew restive and felt a whispering. Thea could hear Miss Livery Johnson's bracelets jangling as she fanned herself. And she could hear her father's nervous ministerial cough. Thor behaved be better than anyone else. When Thea bowed and returned to her seat at the back of the stage, there was the unusual applause. But it was vigorous only from the back of the house where the Mexicans sat and from Ray Kennedy's cockiers. Anyone who could see that Good Nature's audience had been bored. Um, and then after this, this other uh, woman, Livery Johnson? No, not that. Lily Fisher, sorry. Lily Fisher sings these kind of religious songs and they're short and they're catchy and everyone likes them. And you know, she kind of wins the wins the Christmas Eve concert. Um, even though Thea's clearly more talented, clearly worked harder on the piece, you know, but but it's, you know, Lily was singing what the masses could accept and consume and wanted. It, it's really this dilemma, back to this dilemma of the artist in the small town, right? You know, you're, her family's never going to fully understand her. You know, and the, the people who understand her are like the Mexicans and Ray, because he's kind of enamored with her. You know, some people do appreciate it, but it's not the, the people in power and significance in the town. So it's, it's another piece of evidence that she's not going to be able to make it in, in Moonstown if she wants to make anything of her life except being kind of a, a piano tutor. Um, but one person who is, who is, you know, wanted to do, you know, wanted to, I guess, push Thea Ford after this event is, is Wunsk, who convinces her to begin to learn to, to sing opera. And he begins to introduce her to, to operas. And that's a major change. So Thea will eventually make her, make her career as uh, an opera singer. So it's a, it's an important break that she doesn't start just play piano and just um, play tunes like that, but will actually um, cultivate where she, her strengths are, and that's in, in singing. Now, however, the Wunsk, her teacher, begins a very serious decline uh, due to drink. Um, he does. He eventually has to leave town. He loses his students. And he really can't teach Thea anymore. Um, but he does reflect on how talented she is, even though he's he's driven from his his role as a teacher for her. He, he basically can't stay in the town. At one point, he actually gets injured. He's drunk so badly that he gets injured, and then he he loses all his students except Thea, and basically unable to make a living. He has to has to leave town. But as he goes, he thinks a lot about Thea's Thea's brilliance. It's actually a pretty sad scene, and it's it's not the first person that Thea's going to lose in her her young life, uh, fairly tragically. Um, but as he's he's leaving town, he, he this is what he he ponders: What was it about the child that one believed in? Was it her dogged industry, so unusual in this free and easy country? Was it her imagination? More likely, it was because she had both imagination and a stubborn will, curiously balancing and interpreting each other. There was something unconscious 
and unawakened about her, that tempted curiosity. She had a kind of seriousness that had not yet met with that he had not yet met with a pupil before. She hated difficult things, and yet she could never pass one by. They seemed to challenge her, and she had no peace until she had mastered them. And she had the power to make a great effort, to, uh, to lift a weight heavier than itself. Wunsk hoped that he would always remember her as she stood by the track looking up at him, her broad, eager face, so fair in color with its high cheekbones, yellow eyebrows, and greenish hazel eyes. It was a face full of light and energy and the unquestioned hopefulness of first youth. Yes, she was like a flower full of sun, but not the soft, furrowing flowers of his childhood. He had it now, the comparison she had absolutely reached for before. She was like the yellow, prickly pear blossoms that opened in the desert, thornier and sturdier than the maiden flowers. He remembered, not so sweet but wonderful End quote. oh how beautiful how wonderful ah this novel's so great i have to say um so glad i picked up Bill cather anyways um so thea leaves school at this point um and bins she has to kind of be self-learned at this point she doesn't really have a teacher um and she actually becomes the music teacher she starts to take on students more regularly for her income so she is becoming a the, the music teacher for the town, replacing Wunsk. Uh, Ray, meanwhile, though, is incredibly worried about Thea and worried about how she's going to end up. And he realizes that there's something missing in Thea's life with the departure of her teacher. Quote, Ray realized that Thea's life was dull and exacting and that she missed Wunsk. He knew she worked hard and she put up with a great many little annoyances and that her duties as a teacher separated her more, from ever, more than ever from the boys and girls her own age. He did everything he could to provide recreation for her. He bought her candy and magazines and pineapples, of which she was very fond, from Denver, and kept her eyes and ears open for anything that might interest her. He was, of course, living for Thea. He had thought it all out carefully, and he had made up his mind when he would speak to her. When she was 17, he would tell her his plan, ask her to marry him. He would be willing to wait two, even three years, until she was 20, if she thought best. By that time, he would surely have gotten into something, copper, oil, gold, silver, sheep, something. Oh, that's so sad, too. Um, great. What a great novel. So beautifully written. I really love it. Um, and certainly the relationship, the, his plan goes okay for a while. He does develop his relationship. She did, Ray does develop his relationship with, with Thea in, you know, a little bit at a time. Um, now, I don't know if by modern audiences might not like the way it unfolds. I mean, it's not a sex thing, right? That they're, they're, Attraction is not based on that, so it's it's not as creepy as it might sound. Despite his him being thirty and she, when they first meet, is like thirteen, fourteen, or something. Um, I guess the next, the, you know, once I guess I, I don't know if this is a complaint, but the first part, the first quarter of the Song of the Lark, you have like these moments that seem to progressively push Thea from her hometown, right? Whether it's losing her teacher or later on losing Ray, um, you know, her failure at the at the Christmas Eve concert. Another one that comes is really where she starts to ponder religion. And this happens mostly in chapter 18 of part one of Song of the Lark, where she... What, what happens is like a tramp arrives into town. And again, we see the railroad as an important conveyor of, of things into and out of town, you know, whether it's Ray or, you know, other people. In this case, it's a tramp who comes in and he ends up bringing a disease that, that 
actually ravages Moonstone and kills a lot of Thea's classmates and people around her. And she actually very sophisticatedly starts to think about religion in new ways and thinks about the problem of evil. And uh, it's, you know, the problem of evil, if, I know I've talked about it before in this podcast because it comes up a lot in literature, but it's essentially the idea of, you know, can God exist in a world with, with either natural or, you know, or human-made evil, right? Human-made evil, maybe you can justify away with, with um, you know, free will or something. If, if, if you're religious, that's, I guess, that's the common argument. But natural evil, right? This, this is evil that doesn't have to be, right? Children don't have to die of cancer. Children don't have to die in earthquakes. You know, this, this, is, this is not man-made evil, right? There's no, why, why does this exist? So the problem of evil is essentially an argument against the existence of God. And Thea essentially gets there. Um, this is on page 416. Um, and she's talking not to her father in, in, on this. She talks to her, the doctor um, for insight. She says, it seems to me, Dr. Archie, that the whole town's to blame. I'm to blame myself. I know he saw me hold my nose when he went by. Father's to blame. He believes the Bible. He ought to have gone to the caboose and cleared the man up and taken care of him. That's what I can't understand. Do people believe the Bible or don't they? If the, if the next life is all that matters, we're putting here to get we're put here to get ready for it, then why do we have to try to make money and learn things or have a good time? There's not one person in Moonstone who really lives the way the New Testament says. Does it matter or does don't it? End quote. So she sees the hypocrisy here and she she sees it's like somewhat human indifference that led to this tramp being a tramp, being poor, being unhealthy and bringing this disease. And the town pays for it in a way, but she really sees a bit of the hypocrisy of of the religious people in in this town and and he tries to make a justification and say see the town's not that bad and she says but fellows like the tramp and he replies ugly accidents happen this is archie ugly ha accidents happen thea always have and always will but the failures are swept back into the pile and forgotten they don't leave any lasting scar in the world and they don't affect the future the things that last are the good things the people who forge ahead and do something that's what really counts Forget the tramp, Thea. It's a big world, and I want you to go see something about it. You're going to Chicago someday. You'll do something with that fine voice of yours. You're going to take a, you're going to be a number one musician and make us proud of you. Take Mary Anderson now. Even the tramps are proud of her. There ain't a tramp along the Q system who hadn't heard of her. End quote. Now, I, I don't actually. I don't like Archie's response here because it's kind of like almost social Darwinian. It's like you matter more, and your success matters more than the tramp, right? And the tramp will be there as you can. You know, tramps will be there to listen. To, you know, but. If, if other tramps die because they get a disease or something, that's just the way it is. It's kind of unfortunate. I don't think the answer fully satisfies uh, Thea, but she's struggling with religion. And that becomes another kind of, you know, nail in the coffin of her life in Moonstone is she really can't jive her the way she starts to see the world working with her father's profession and, and uh, the world of this kind of small town religious life of, of Moonstone. In the final two chapters of, of part one of the Song of the Lark, we, we, we see the death of, of Ray Kennedy. We see the death of, um, and this, this in a way is a liberating experience for, for Thea, but of course the cost of it is very tragic. And, you know, the tragedy is mostly we see through Ray's eyes. And, you know, Thea does come and visit with Ray as he lays dying. And it's quite a sad, sad moment, certainly. And but we don't see the same suffering and pain in Thea. 
you know, that we see in Ray. And I guess the, I don't want to say it's unrequited love, but certainly it, was, it was, seemed to be really one sided to me. Uh, and that makes it a little bit more sad. Um, but he basically gets hit by a train um, and he, he somehow manages to survive. And, you know, he's in this bed waiting to die. And they the town knows that he's going to want to see Thea. So they drag Thea to see him. And he gives a very kind of optimistic talk, you know, kind of like, I'll be fine kind of thing. Or, you know, you know, tries to make her feel well, but he wants to see her one last time. And eventually, though, he dies, of course. But that last meeting between Thea and Ray is really worth reading. It's it's so it's actually very beautiful where, you know, he kisses her. She kisses him and he's trying to comfort her. And, you know, she, I think she doesn't fully understand everything that's going to happen, but. You know, she still has hope that maybe the doctors could could fix it. At the same time, though, she's trying to put up a strong front to make sh- to not see weak and sort of in front of Ray. So it's it's really hard to to read, and um, there's a lot going on emotionally in in that chapter. Even though I, it mostly feels you really feel the suffering of Ray. You know, but you know he's but he's with the last moments of the woman he with, with the young girl who would have been the woman he, that would have been the love of his life. Even after she, after Thea leaves, he even says to the doctor, "Look after this girl, Doc. She's a queen." It's ah, it's really nice. Um, then of course Ray dies. He got hit by a train. He's not gonna survive. But um, they eventually Archie, you know, t- reveals to the Kronbergs, Kronborgs, um, that that. Ray Kennedy had a will and had a life insurance policy and that life insurance policy gave him like a few hundred dollars and the, he wanted those hundred dollars if he died to be used to send Thea to Chicago to study and Archie not only delivers this news he insists that the Kronbergs do that and follow through on Ray Kennedy's wishes and, t- and do this for Thea's you know, best it was being Thea's best interest to go to Chicago because she's really not going to have any future as an artist in in Moonstone, and they, they agree, and so she's off to Chicago, and that's where part one of Song of the Lark ends. Covers a fair amount of time, mostly though it's really the kind of the teenage years of of Thea as she's coming to mature in her own thinking, starting to find the limitations of life on this in the small town and then you know the failure of everything that could have kept her in moonstone including the death of ray kennedy means she has nowhere to go but on to chicago so that's that's where she goes um with a little bit of money from ray's life insurance policy and the help of of the doctor howard archie um so that's it for today um i'll be back to look at i believe part two and part three of Song of the Lark, if you want to read along. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments or thoughts about this this great work, if you've read Song of the Lark, I'd love to know your experience with the novel, what you thought of it, um, your own review, your own you know feelings about it. Um, I guess that's it. Um, if you have those comments, leave. You could send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment here on the, on the Podbean website. Um, but if that's not, the, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll be back shortly with parts twos and part two and three, the next 100 pages or so of, of Song of the Lark. So again, thanks for listening and, and see you next time.